On episode 312 of the Tennis Files podcast, you learn the fundamental fitness and mental game principles with Johnny Parks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the show. This is Mirabon, and I'm excited to bring you another interview. Uh, this one is on fitness and mental game principles that I think are really crucial to help you develop into a better player. We've got on Johnny Parks, who is the co-host of the Compete Like a Champion podcast. You probably recall me having Dr. Larry Lauer on the show and the summit as well. And now we have his co-host on. So yeah, really cool stuff uh, on this one. Johnny is the lead national coach at USCA Player Development out in California. He is also the former assistant head of strength and conditioning at IMG Academy. Johnny is also a master tennis performance specialist through the ITPA. I actually have the first level certification at, from the ITPA, of uh, which Dr. Mark Kovacs and his wife, Mary Jo, are the uh, co-founders there. Great organization. So predictably, we get into a lot of really critical principles in that realm of tennis. And yeah, we get into a lot of mental game tactics and uh, fundamentals as well, such as how to handle days where you're not playing your best, which all of us you know, have that sort of situation uh, many times on the court, and you just have to find a way. So we talk about that. We talk about a lot of aspects of, um, you know, how to optimize your workouts for tennis. And I have some specific questions as well um, regarding certain lifts. So I think you'll find that interesting. And we talk strategy too. So really a, a wide ranging conversation on many of the most important topics to help you become a complete player, really. So I hope you really enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach Johnny Parks. Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of the podcast I have with me, a fellow podcast host, uh, which is always awesome because I know that they have like a, a good setup, you know, good camera situation and mic. So that's always exciting. You know, coaches aren't always uh, in the in the top echelons of technology, so to speak. But uh, we've got Johnny Parks here, Compete Like a Champion co-host with uh, Dr. Larry Lauer, who I've had on the show before. Uh, Johnny, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. And how have you been? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the invite and, and uh, bringing me on. Yeah, I've been good. Uh, busy time this summer. We have lots of players playing a lot of the USTA Junior tournaments. And we've got some players over in... Um, over in Europe at the minute, playing, just finishing up junior Wimbledon and things like that. So, but yeah, everything's going well. And uh, yeah, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Thanks. I'm good. Uh, yes. Uh, we were talking about uh, English football before this, which was fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I've been trying to play more tennis, enjoy myself. So yeah, definitely um, 
you know, no complaints on my end. So, yeah, you know, I, th- I think it's always really interesting to find out how my guests have got into the game of tennis. And obviously, you, uh, you know, you're in a great position now with the USA player development. I believe you're a lead national coach uh, over there. So how did you uh, get into the game? Did you, you know, play a lot as a junior? How did that all come about? Yeah, my my dad's very passionate about tennis and he got me and my brother involved at a young age. You know, we'd be spend a lot of time out in in wet windy weather in in the UK on AstroTurf yeah. courts just just playing and we enjoyed it a lot. My my dad at that time when we were younger was had other businesses, but then he came out and became a tennis coach uh, when I was about 10 years old and my brother was about 12. So so it was really a family thing. We had, you know, go down to the local club on the weekends, play and hang around. It was like a social thing as well for, for our family. So that's how we got involved. And, um, you know, my dad was extremely passionate about the sport that he, he ended up getting rid of his businesses and becoming a tennis coach. Wow. Um, and he didn't really coach me and my brother. We used to just go out and hit a lot, as I said, but he got into coaching and he's still, he's sort of winding down his career now. That was very much the start of it. And yeah, we just kind of took it on from there. Uh, my brother was a top top British junior, grew up playing with Andy Murray and Jamie Murray and a whole host of other really, really great juniors or, or you know guys that have gone on to have very successful careers. And I wasn't as good. So I was like the young, the young brother who was being driven around the country, watching his brother play, getting emotionally invested in his matches mm-hmm. and all that. And I played lots of di- other different sports growing up as well. My brother was just just obsessed with tennis. And eventually, when I got to about 13 years old, I said, I, I want to do this. I want to only play tennis and explore how good I can be. And, and so that's what I did and went off to school, kind of went off to like this sports boarding school to, to, so I could focus on tennis because I, I wasn't going to get uh, much in my local area. So we went off there and um, spent five years there developing my game, had a great time, had great coaches, and then ended up earning a scholarship over to the US and went to University of New Mexico, where again, had, had a really great four years and, and then got into coaching after that. So yeah, that's the, that's the simple version, I guess. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, very cool. Uh, some very intense, <laughs> you know, uh, training in there. Uh, I was curious, you know, when you mentioned how uh, your brother played against, uh, you know, Andy Murray and a lot of great players back in the day. Uh, any particular impressions that he got from those players, or maybe that he he? Oh, I remember when you know Andy did this or anything like that. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I kind of always tell this story, and I remember watching my brother play Andy in in one match, and. You know, the, the great qualities and traits you see Andy now, you, you saw it when he was younger. And mm. so my brother was was up in the match. I mean, something like a set and two, three, zero. And Andy was, was you know, not having a great time on the court and kind of having, you know, little, little tantrums here and there. And I remember his mum sort of yelling at him through the fence a little bit, like kind of get, get your stuff together, Andy. Like this is, this is not acceptable. And, um, yeah, he had a bit of a telling off and then they changed ends. And when Andy came out of that change of ends, I think my brother then won maybe one or two more games after that. Wow. <laughs> so then Andy was able to turn it around. I think he ended up winning, I don't know, six, three, six, one in three sets. So, you know, it was a really interesting to see that trait, you know, it's like that determination and all those amazing qualities that Andy has shown us for so many years. You know, you know, you go back to those junior years watching him play or watching my brother play him and 
you, you see a lot of those great qualities now and and um or you saw those great qualities back then so that's always a story that really stuck out in my brain and that resilience and that sort of raw determination that Andy has it just was uh, and that ability to kind of just switch things on and off was unbelievable so uh that's one kind of one of my favorite stories thinking back to those days so yeah yeah awesome thanks for sharing and yeah it's funny to visualize a young Andy Murray doing the same things he's doing now and it makes me think uh Johnny you know like you see like a lot of the champions sometimes you start old footed and they're like same strokes and like you mentioned similar same mentality so I mean do you just find that like the top players who you work with like they they've had those important traits all along and then I mean how difficult is it to to kind of bake in or implement like you know these championship traits in players who really have them well i think that's the, that's a great question and i think that's the big question that everyone's always searching for but all, all i can sort of go off is my experience to date and i mean definitely when there's there's with with younger players and seeing what they end up you know turning into down the road there there are definitely some internal traits there that exist whether it be you know genetic imprinted from from their family and parents whether it's really great family morals and values that have been instilled into them and that ability to have resi- you know be resilient and determined and fight and and be you know have that mental strength i think you definitely see those traits in some at an earlier age but it's then how you develop them from there and i think everybody everybody can develop traits and i think those that maybe have it more internally from a young age i think it's if they have the right guidance it, it comes a little bit quicker a little bit easier and then those that may not quite have those traits it's where you find those teachable moments to try and instill it in them and when they're ready for that information and ready to work on it but it, it's it's the great question is how you how how you help players understand the importance of that side and how they're able to connect to you know what is mental strength what is being resilient mean what is being you know tough on a on a tennis court mean and that's not so easy for a lot of people and and so you know everyone has a i think a little bit of a different road to to figuring that out and some some get it a little bit easier and some get it you know a little bit uh takes a little bit longer so it's um you know it's 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 a different journey for everyone yeah yeah 100% you know you have a very Cool um, background, you know, and just in, in reading it, um, you know, you, you were, I guess, at the IMG Academy as well. And you've had, uh, you know, since at other places. So I'm wondering, um, I guess, yeah, let's let's talk through kind of that journey. And then I'll have some follow up questions. Specifically, one would be kind of the most important things you've you've learned along the way from that journey. Yeah, exactly. I think I think if I was ever to apply for a job and people look at my resume, they'd be like, it kind of look it looks all over the place but for for me it makes complete sense obviously but um no i mean when i came out of college i got straight into coaching i remember coming back from the nca tournament my senior year the day after i finished and i lost in the in the round of 32 i started getting calls from parents can you can you hit with my kids can you you know mm. can you coach my kids so I got into that and as I say my dad was coaching I used to help him out a lot when I'd come back from school and come back from university my brother got into coaching and so it was something that I felt like I really wanted to do it was definitely a goal of mine to end up running my own program and academy and luckily I ended up doing it within 
first year of coming out of college, set up my own program and little junior mm. academy in New Mexico for players that aspired to want to get a college scholarship. And so that kind of set me off. I mean, I got that experience and, and got going with it. That journey, unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't able to get visas to stay in the US. So I went back to the UK and I kind of dabbled in a lot of different experiences from traveling with some lower level pro players at the Futures and Challenger level to coaching at a local park in, in the middle of London with young kids and adults to coaching in different countries, Spain and Portugal. And then when I came back to the US, I you know, I went into grassroots. I, I became a director of a uh, director of tennis at a, a small country club. Started going into schools, trying to get kids from schools into the club, and then I was doing some work for the USTA on the side of that too, which was going in and doing some camps for them in the mm. SoCal area in the Southwest region, some of their Team USA sectional, regional, national camps, and that led to me getting an opportunity to work for USTA PD in Orlando as in their player ID and, and development department, which I eventually, after a couple of years, ended up becoming the senior manager of and overseeing our, our training Team USA training structure around the uh, around the country. And then during COVID, a lot changed for everybody and, and within the USCA too. And I had this opportunity to join IMG. I got a call from a good friend, Margie Zessinger, over there mm -hmm. at IMG, who's head of girls tennis and their head of S&C uh, for the tennis academy came open. And my coaching career always involved the element of doing the fitness side for the players. Like when I traveled on, you know, with some of those players at the, the lower levels, the futures, the challenges, they can't afford a coach and a fitness coach and all that to go with them. So mm. when I came out of college, I ended up also interning with the University of New Mexico S&C uh, Strength and Conditioning Department. So the S&C and the fitness has always been in, embedded into, into everything that I've done. And my bias as a tennis, everyone has a bias as a tennis coach. Are they more technical? Are they more tactical? Are they more physical, movement-based? For me, I was definitely a movement-based, uh, had a movement-based bias as a tennis coach. And so I took this opportunity with IMG to, to, to go there and went there for two years, working with all levels of players from the players in the foundational groups in the tennis academy, all the way to working with pros, top 100 pros, top 100 juniors. and helping them in their journey. And uh, after a couple of years, I got a call back from USCA PD and asked me to be a lead national coach to oversee their junior program out in Carson, California. So that's where we're, at, we're currently at now. Oh, yeah. Um, such a cool uh, journey. I wish I had <laughs> done some of that stuff. That, that's so cool. A um, lot of... Um follow-up questions here which is great so i guess first off you know you mentioned you you traveled on the futures tour uh obviously coaching uh players and and you know wearing several different hats so i was wondering kind of your overall impression of the the futures tour you know how how tough it was um you know these like certain some are random locations and and just yeah how difficult it is as a player to kind of you know w win at that level and then get out of it into uh, higher levels. Well, my impression is, is you, you don't want to stay in there too long. If you're good, you'll get out of there quickly. Obviously, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be successful in getting into to semis and finals and, and try and get through to that challenger level pretty quick. But it, it's, it's a tough, I mean, you know, if you enjoy it, it doesn't seem as much of a grind. But if you're playing it week in, week out in tough places, I mean, we went to, <laughs> we went to 
Israel for four or five weeks. And in our last week there, sirens blaring around where we were at. Rockets have been fired over from Gaza and people were running inside and the locals are laughing at us because it seems like something they deal with quite often. And we're like, what what on earth is going on? So you see these sea defense systems coming out in the, the sea where we were at. We were in this place called Elat, Israel. So that was an interesting experience. We went to Thailand in 2014 when the riots were going on, where people were trying to overthrow the government. So we're walking to the tennis facility every day and we have to go underneath this bypass, this, this freeway. And you see all the, the police or the military laying out all their riot gear, riot gear, putting on their riot gear, and then they're, they're marching down the freeways into the city. And we're seeing that every day just as we're going from our hotel to the, to the tennis facility. And then we're in Turkey, which Turkey was nice. But you go to Turkey where you can play, I don't know, futures 48 weeks out of the year. And you stay there for four or five weeks. It's tough. You're in the same, you know, it's nice environment. It's not complaining, but you're in an all-inclusive kind of hotel type resort. Mm. Same people, the same food, the same facility day in, day out. And you're there to try and do the business. And you get a bit of that cabin fever going on. And so you have to be Mm. really determined and motivated to, to just get in there, do your thing and not be bothered by a lot of those things, external factors, I guess, that could factor into into that experience. But I, I, as a coach, I had a great time going through that experience as a player of the players I was working with, you know, some embraced it, some found it challenging. And so it, it, it's a, it's a whole, I'd, I'd call it just a big whirlwind of, of, ex, of um, experiences and different dynamics that you could face at that level. But you just have to be extremely focused on why, why you're playing and what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, my 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 thing would be to try and get out of that level quickly to that challenger level, but obviously your skill has to be there to do it. So, yeah, yeah. And you, you just mentioned a few elements. Uh, I was going to ask you. You know, you mentioned the focus and the skill, but I mean, what what do you think is like the biggest difference between like the futures level and the challenger level tour? Or you know, what do you think those that get to this you know semis and finals and win them like have that the other others don't? Is it just is it mainly the skill or is it like mainly the mentality or is it like a mix or what do you think? I think it's a bit of a mix. I think what you need, you can have some good players that it almost be like the kind of stereotypical college player that grinds, works points, uh, no, no maybe distinct weapons, but um, are willing to work. And you get a lot of those at that futures level. And so you you can end up being in a lot of battles at that level. And then to get to the challenger level and then be successful there, I think it's about developing the weapons and also the mentality of using those weapons at very key moments. So yeah. sometimes just being a good grinder at the challenger level isn't enough. Uh, you need to be able to now develop weapons because you're going to play guys that do have weapons that can hurt you. And so I think it's de- very much the ability to be able to 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 have one or two very clear weapons in the locker that enabled you to be successful at that ne- next stage. And if you don't, then you have to be one of the best, you know, you have to be one of the best aggressive baseliners or counter punches out there. You have to have a, obviously a very good physical base to play that game and be very successful at that level. So, so yeah, I mean, I would say that's the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. And do you think like the 
always pretty much the serve and forehand or do you do you do you think that like if somebody were to want to develop a like should it be those two or maybe should it be something else to be uh, a little different from the others well, i think i think an all court game is definitely a, a game style that can be highly successful but i i think that comes down to everyone's individual traits and how they connect to their game style and their personalities and how those two kind of fit together but the 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 greater i think the greatest thing at that level is really having an understanding of of how you can hurt someone i think on the men's side the serve and forehand is the obvious to have a big mm. serve and be able to rely on that to get some free points and especially some free points in tough moments facing break point facing uh closing out the game at 5 all to go 6 5 up and stay on serve or 4 5 down and to stay in the set the ability to to be able to have get some free points out of a serve or a serve plus one. You know, we just watched Eubanks at Wimbledon and his yeah. serve plus ones were absolutely incredible. Big serving, following it up with big forehands. I think he got like the most, you know, he's so far as the most winners uh, ever at Wimbledon. And uh, you have to you have to have that ability. I think on the female side, it's definitely that ability, the intangibles to to play an all court game. The, you know, and I think you've, we've seen that with players like Pagula, who made a run, Svitolina coming forward, being a bit more aggressive than usual, Anjabur, uh, the ability to have these, these intangibles and play more of an all-court style is something that is becoming ever so more prevalent in the women's game. And, and so you, know, you can look at that as being the strengths to develop on, on maybe the men's and the women's side. So, Yeah, yeah, great insight. And... and um... You, I think you mentioned you also work with was it Team US US USTA sectional national camps was it? Because I guess I, I saw that and and you know I play a lot of um USTA like adult leagues like five o ten o mix nine o mix whatever. Did did you work with uh with adults as well in these camps or was it all juniors? Well, we worked in with adults from the sense of we we did a lot of parent support. Uh, um, okay. So we do a lot a lot of parent sessions to help answer questions that they may have about where their child is at and that next stage or answering com competition questions. What type of competition should my kid be playing and when do they start playing ITFs or, you know, whatever. So we were always there and we, we have some great people on staff internally and some great people in the sections that uh, have a lot of great knowledge that are able to, to use that for the, for the parents. And then we work with a lot of coaches. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a great network of private coaches out there that come to the camps. And so a lot of that is a collaboration with them. And, and the way we like to set up a lot of those pair, uh, coaching sessions is, look, I mean, this is, this is like a roundtable almost. Like, we want to learn from you. What do you want to learn from us? And how do we just help each other get better and grow? Uh, how can we help you with your player? What resources can we help you with? You know, whether it's a side-by-side -side on Dartfish and some technical analysis, whether it's, you know, answering yeah. questions about certain like statistics and, you know, where players, where players games should be headed. It's, it's very much a, a great collaboration between, I guess, you know, like us as national coaches and USTAPD and, and, and all the, the work that the private sector is doing out there to develop these players. Yeah. Work that, that you've been doing and continue to do. In terms of your uh, experience with the uh, IMG Academy, you know, being head SNC coach there, I guess what were the main principles that you find yourself having to, you know, over and over, you know, telling players, I guess in other words, you know, the most important, 
fundamentals of SNC and in movement as well. But yeah, just generally speaking, because I think we have a lot of, and you know, this this podcast caters mostly to adult club level players, you know, maybe like three five to to five oh and and a lot of them are seeking just advice on on their fitness and their strength training and, and how to work with that. So I know you you probably work mostly with there, but I guess generally speaking, like what, what advice uh, or principles that maybe you taught the juniors that might be applicable? Yeah, well, I, I, I've coached a lot of adults in my experiences as well. And, and I would say that, you know, my approach has never really changed, whether it's developing a young junior or whether it's helping an adult maximize or in their improvement. And on the physical side, it's very much just doing athletic things, do things that help you become more athletic. And I, I, don't, I don't think there's a cutoff in age for that. I think you can develop your athleticism at any stage of life. It just looks a, may look a little bit different in, in what you do and how you do it. And, and at a very simple level, to, to do athletic things, you've got to do a lot of different types of things. So with the kids, mm. you, you, you're trying to, the younger they are, the more fun you're trying to make it make things games-based, have fun with it. But what you find with that is that's just not with younger kids. Adults who show up want to have fun. They want to improve. So you can make things games-based with them. Playing you know, fun little warm-up games um, like we do with our players and going and doing different things, yoga and you know, whether it's Pilates, yoga. Uh, some of the pro players I've worked with get into Pilates and yoga. It helps them really expand their range of motion in their joints and their flexibility. And, and again, like that's regardless of level, regardless of level, you can go and do those things and have those different sort of diverse athletic experiences. Whether you're an adult and you like to play maybe the other, other different sports, I've had some, you know, obviously male adult clients in the past that like to play Sunday league soccer or whether they like to go and play a bit of racquetball or now obviously padel and, and some other things are coming forward. Go and have different experiences that help you become a little bit more athletic. And so my, my basic principle is if you want to become more athletic physically, then go and do athletic things. If you always do the same thing over and over, you become a product of what you're doing over and over. So if you only play tennis and only have a certain movement patterns or the way you move to a ball, well, you can get decent at that, but it's going to be the only thing you do over and over. And in tennis, you get put in some very compromising positions you get pushed back, you get moved forward, you have to push in and out the corners from the side pretty fast. You have to get low, you have to come up high, you know, and everything in between. And so you got to go and do a bunch of different things that help you get into all these different funky positions and get in and out of them. And so on a very, very fundamental level, I mean, that's, that's, that's how basic I can keep it really. Yeah, Johnny. So related question for the serve. I personally been <laughs> trying to work on this uh, stroke for a while and, you know, I've and trials and tribulations, of course, like everyone else. But what sorts of um, activities do you think players can do to get more athletic on that front? Because that, you know, actually requires a lot of athleticism and mobility and whatnot, power production. I mean, the, obviously, I'm, you know, baseball comes to mind. But what would you have um, players do? You know, could be sports, could be a particular movement in the gym, anything like that. Yeah, well, I think one of your previous guests, Dr. Mark Kovacs, I think can be seen as an industry yeah. expert in developing out the serve. So from a technical standpoint, yeah. I think I, I can't really add much to maybe what, what you know, the level of detail that he studied and researched the serve and has, has helped so many, so many players around the country or the world improve at. 
I would say from a physical standpoint, you have to recognize that tennis and especially the serve is a kinetic chain movement. It starts from the ground and finishes. It's really from the toes through the fingertips. And from that standpoint, then you have to develop that that rhythm and that complex coordination that you're able to start from the ground and then connect it through the core and then mm-hmm. releasing out the upper body. And what comes with that is, is it's a jumping movement. You're loading and exploding. You're rotating your upper body. That's the complex coordination. Your lower body's loading and unloading, and your upper body is coiling. And so from that standpoint, doing things in the gym, like kinetic chain movements, you could take light dumbbells. You can be doing squat presses. You know, you could do it with two hands, two feet. You can get a light med ball, a light med ball out there and do some explosive throws overhead. To, to, under, to, to feel that movement. And it's really interesting. I actually did this yesterday with a few players is when you start doing, let's say we're doing a squat, you know, the med ball's on the floor and we're going to do a squat, pick up and throw overhead. Um, sometimes that is not very connected. So what you'll see is, is players pick up the ball, bring it to their chest, stand up and then throw. And really what you want is, is you want them to pick up the ball and bring it through and throw straight away. And what by doing that, and that is a full flow kinetic chain movement. It's not broken up. It's a nice rhythm and a nice flow. So something like that gets you, gets to help you feel that movement. Mm. So, so that helps. And then the over, the overhead motion itself can be quite complex if you haven't done it from a young age. So just, I mean, again, this is basic, but sometimes these principles should stay basic and not be complicated. Uh, learn how to throw a ball. You know, I know you talked about baseball there, but that, that's throwing more horizontally. Tennis, we sure. want to be able to throw vertically a bit more. So picking up a tennis ball and throwing it vertically. I like to use these high cones so it's not too low. And I like to, if I get into my surf stance position, I like to place this high cone right behind my back foot and place a tennis ball on top of it. And what I'll do is, is I'll load down with my dominant hand, pick up that ball mm. and throw it as high as I can throw it. Not as far, mm. but as high as I can throw it. And then to progress on is, you know, I know in America, you like the, the egg shaped balls. So <laughs> get, get out the, uh, get out the American footballs and learn how to throw a, a football. And, and then the other cool tool that all everyone loves using is those nerf, those nerf things that make that whistling sound in the air. Oh, so, yeah getting those things out too, but just learning how to, how to throw. And you want to, you want to try and do it as organically as possible as well. So you, you, you kind of figure it out as well. Like you kind of become your own little problem solver of how to be a better thrower. And that will translate to being able to, to throw that racket up at the ball. So um, those are some basic ones that we do quite a bit of. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. As you know, Johnny, I prefer the real football. You yeah, know, the proper, the proper round shaped balls, not the, I call American football hand egg because it's not football, it's, it's hand egg, you know, so. That is a fantastic, I'm going to use that on my friends, hand egg. Uh, <laughs> just a quick clarification, Johnny, um, you know, the, the exercise you mentioned uh, with the med ball, uh, I, I guess you go down and then you, you, you know, explode up, you described it much better, so I, would <laughs> I suggest that people rewind to really. Is is that uh, when you throw it up? Do you throw it with two hands or one hand? Well, you start with two because okay. you want to feel that motion from bottom to ground. Uh, you can again; you'd have to go lighter, but you can do it with a. I would just suggest when you get you, sometimes you get those smaller 
those smaller balls that you would do a oh. lot of shoulder shoulder um, throws with, like 90-90 yeah. throws with. You can get those and you can squat down and throw up as well. You can do it single arm. So it, it's really, but I, again, you would go a little bit lighter, but really just that motion, that kinetic chain motion, I would just do it with two. Again, when you come to throwing, that's obviously all sing, all single-handed. You know, again, I would use that as a kinetic chain movement. If I want to actually work on single arm throws, I would just go and throw a different implement. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Was there a name for that particular exercise um, with the ball? I mean, call really? it, you, you can call it a, a squat to overhead throw or a squat okay. press. And uh, usually a press, you, you wouldn't let go. But so to, to, for an explosive movement, you're just trying to throw that ball. So I just call it a squat to overhead throw, um, trying to throw cool. that thing as high as you can. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I, I know that, you know, some listeners might try to YouTube it, <laughs> uh, so yeah. give them a name for it. That, that's awesome. You know, uh, Johnny, you and, um, Larry, as I mentioned, have a great, uh, podcast called, uh, compete like a champion. So, uh, I, you know, I've obviously I listened to it as well and you have a lot of great topics. It was quite a few mental game as well, I think. So I was wondering to, to ask you, you know, a few mental game questions. I actually got a, a few from uh, one of my friends, Tara. Shout out to her. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, one of them is uh, how do you really tough when when you have a, a doubles partner who maybe they're not quite synced up with or they're not, you know, having a good day? You know, I'm sure that you've probably gotten questions like this from your uh, from your players. So any advice on that? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, it's 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 really cool for me to be on that podcast with, with Larry. Cause I selfishly, I just get to learn every, every week or every other week when I, when I go through it with Larry and it's definitely has more of a, a mental theme, mental skill theme. Yeah. I mean, look, what's the, what's the diff, what's difference between doubles and singles? You're reliant on, on a partner. It's now team-based. You have to work together. You have to be in sync. It's no fun playing doubles out there when you've got a partner who's, uh, who's not communicating very well and is frustrated you know so i think as a as a partner you're trying you try and having to be as po- as as positive as possible you know i think in any partnership there are times where somebody's down and somebody's higher and you need to be able to lift them up you know when when two doubles players are really perfectly in sync it's when they're both fired up both positive both working together and you know, pushing each other. And that's great, but that's not the reality of every single time you step on a court with your doubles player. You might have a doubles player that's coming and it's just having a bad day. You know, their kids annoyed them before they came out and made them late to practice or late to their match. And, you know, that's bothering them or they've had a rough day at work, whatever it is. And so I think you have to be aware that, you know, especially with adult, you know, when you're playing doubles and you're in a team-based environment now, you have to bring out those team qualities and, and being a good good team member means you do have to elevate and pick up your partner sometimes. So, you know, over communicating, being mm-hmm. positive. Maybe they are not wanting to come up with the plan and the strategy. So you go, okay, hey, let's let's do this. What do you think? Start engaging them a little bit more, and as they be, you know, hopefully get a little bit looser and, and and okay, then they start engaging more in in coming up with the tactics. Okay, let's serve wide on this one and poach. But but if not. You know, it it can be a challenging day for you if you're the person who's trying to always pick up your doubles partner. But I think if you go into it understanding that, hey, everyone's allowed and everyone's entitled to have a bit of a rough day. So I'm going to try and be that force for this person to try and pick them up and be positive. And you, 
you know, in in sense, kind of kill him with kindness a little bit. And, you know, in that, be understanding, be a bit empathetic, but say, hey, look, you know, we, we, we've got to, we've got to push ourselves through this a little bit, you know, if we want to win this match. And so, you know, that, that would be my approach and I, you know, and that, how I've handled those situations in the past, like in college with doubles players that are having a bit of a rough time. But the worst thing that can happen is, is if you know, you can see they're having a bit of a rough day. If you get on top of them, you don't talk to them. It just becomes a really, you know, really, it's not, you're not enjoying it. It becomes really, really, um, kind of a little bit disheartening out there right like and then you just get frustrated yourself and that's going to help nobody so yeah yeah great advice because you know the usta um leagues often you get paired with somebody who you haven't played with before or you don't know at all and uh i think that's great advice of communication uh, especially and just yeah yeah just talking through things get, you know asking them questions so they feel like they're participating and whatnot that's great and then I guess another question on the mental game aspect is, um, and, and you did talk about this a little bit with, um, you know, Andy Murray's traits, but uh, how do you handle days that you're not playing your best and still find a way to endure? I mean, is there a particular uh, process that you suggest or maybe some go-to sorts of tactics, anything like that? Yeah, well, I, I think, first of all, you have to normalize that. You, you're not going to show up every day and play your best. Right. You know, I think a lot of a lot of great coaches I've I've listened to in the past and have had for, uh, the fortune of being around, like Paul Anacone and Jose yeah. Higueres and a lot of you know a lot of great coaches. I mean, you know, they'll say that you'll be lucky to have four or five matches a year where you're playing your best. Yeah, um, and again, regardless of level, that 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 remains true of of most. So you first of all have to normalize it. You have to normalize that. Tennis is a game of figuring out how to win uh, on the day and what you have when you show up on that day. So, today, you know, days can be a little bit tougher than others. You also have to recognize you're going to play a different opponent. Not every opponent is the same. So that, that different opponent is going to have a different effect on you. So your job is to figure out how to, how to get the most out of your game on that day. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to play your best to win. So I think if you start with that perspective, it calms you down a little bit. I'm not yeah. going to win because I'm not playing my best. I had a bad warm-up. Well, who cares? Your opponent might have had a bad warm-up too, and you actually might have a really good matchup here. So you've got to have a healthy perspective of that leading in. When you're in the middle of a match and things are not quite going your way, you've got to simplify. Because when things are not going your way, the brain gets a little cloudy. We start to overcomplicate our thinking. And my advice to any player that starts to think, you know, a million things every two seconds is simplify it. Hit the pause button, hit that stop button a minute, and just go to something really, really simple. I'm going to hit 95% of my shots cross court now. I'm just going to try and get a bit of a rhythm and just go everything cross court. And once I get a little bit of rhythm and I still feel a little bit better, then maybe I change something. But let's just start there from the ground. If it's my serve, maybe take a little bit off my first serve and, and try and hit my targets a little bit better. Serve wide, go open court, serve into the body, go back behind the body. Have, have a very simple game plan that you, you can at least attempt. Doesn't mean you're going to execute it every time. Remember, if you're having a bad day, that means that execution's not great. But if you simplify your thinking and you simplify what you're trying to do out there, you give yourself the best chance of being able to work through it. But overcomplicating things, trying to do too much, in my experience, only kind of makes things a little bit worse. 
Yeah, yeah. Simplification sounds sounds like a, a great plan. And then um, this is an interesting question that I received from from Tara as well. How do you handle <laughs> mental intimidation from an opponent? So I don't know if maybe mm-hmm. you've had this with your players. You know, they feel like the other players doing certain things intimidate them or throw them off. I mean, we see this, you know, here and there on the tour, obviously. So uh, it's there. Smile and focus on the game plan. I mean. Uh-huh. I mean, let me ask you if if you've played a lot of you've played a lot of these league league matches that I, I've seen and I've coached league teams like four O teams, and that nice. is like intense, highly competitive, <laughs> yeah. stuff. especially when yeah. you get to like sectionals and nationals, right? Like it is dog eat dog. So, how have how have you handled some of that stuff in the past? Yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot of you know great things to implement, obviously from great guests like yourself. So. Um, you know, I just kind of go back to like my in point in between point routine and, and just try to kind of refocus, reset and say, okay, what, what is the game plan? So it's pretty much exactly <laughs> what you said. So, yeah, I think if you try to just, if you get too emotional at it, that usually throws, throws people off. I mean, maybe there's some people who like can use that as a fuel and get extremely pumped up and things like that. But I think generally speaking, it's probably better to just try to ignore it as best you can. Um, otherwise, you know, you might do stupid things on the court that are way beyond like what you should be doing tactically and strategically. So yeah, yeah that's, well, that, well, that's a, that's a great point you make. Cause then that, that factors in different personalities. So some people do like finding that chip on their shoulder, yeah. you know? And so when people start fist pumping in the face and hitting the ball to the upper side of the court, instead of just handing it to them and, you know, <laughs> You know, all that, all that little dramatic stuff is some people like that. So it's like, okay, bring it on. You know, I want this chip on my shoulder. I, I, I step up to the plate there. But for those that don't and don't like that, my greatest advice is just smile about it. Smile and then, like you said, go to your routines and focus on your plan. Because if you smile about something or you laugh it out, it, it, it's almost like a release. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a release that you're okay with it. You know, again, like, someone's trying to intimidate you that tells you oh i'm affecting them here that they're so bothered by the way that we're playing that they're trying to do all these extra little mind games well that's pretty funny to me because that's that just tells me that you can't beat me straight up so all right let's let's go so yeah yeah love it love it and i got compliment i think (laughs) that's true that's true yeah gonna take the positive there i agree and then yeah, I got very excited when you mentioned how you've, you know, you've coached like uh, these adult 4-0 teams and whatnot, because obviously that's a lot of our audience, you know, 3-5 to 5-0 and whatnot, 3-0 as well. Um, so I guess um, ha- what elements have you seen like when you're watching these teams like and they're just practicing or playing matches or whatever that you think, oh, gosh, like if they just improve the- this one thing or these couple of things. Like they could make it from four zero to four five, or even higher. Well, f- for me, it's certainly improving the serve. I know we've touched on it. I think the serve is always a big thing that uh, at that level that that can help or or not. If you the better your serve gets, the more you can involve the net person. And I often, you know, the higher level you go, quite often it's the it's the person who's at the net that is helping the server hold serve. So you have to in- engage and involve. You have to be extremely clear on your on your patterns of play. So mm-hmm. knowing, you know, I, I I used to get a 
you know, we do a lot of work with with the poaching and the covering because if you cross over that center line when you're poaching, then you need to just stay on the other side of the court. And what you've often seen with with players is they'll go and get that poach, not hit the poach quite that well, and then they'll shuffle back to the original position. And they've not seen that their opponent who's at the back of the court is preparing to go and cover them. And now they're having to go back the other way because of adjusting to, to the net person's positioning. So it's always being extremely clear that if somebody moves across to the other side, then they stay there and they go and cover. Something as basic as that needs to be locked in. So you don't need to communicate yours, mine, switch you know, which can create that panic and confusion. You just know it's aut automatic. If you cross that center line, my partner at the baseline is going to go cover me. I don't need to look behind me to see where they're at because I need to focus forward on the, ten on the tennis ball of my opponents. So making sure that you've got those patterns and coverage is automatic. So you don't have to say anything. To me, that's like the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. So you you're limiting the potential for confusion, which again, if 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 I'm playing with you and we're all over the place and having to shout out switch or switch back, I think all we're telling our opponent is that we've not played that much together and we don't really know what we're doing out there. So they'll probably take advantage of that. Yeah, most definitely. I was playing a, a five zero doubles match. Uh, was it? Yeah, two days ago. And you know, partner Justin. Um, you know, huge serve, great volleys, and. For me, a more consistent, you know, pretty decent net and whatnot, and stay solid. But yeah, I mean, we just have that understanding. Like, you know, obviously, we knew like where to go if the ball was lobbed over each other's head. But then, you know, I contrast that with we have a, a Friday uh, social uh, tennis uh, event, uh, which is super fun. But you know, we do some some of these drills, um, live ball drills, and and some a lot of times you see the person get lobbed, and then you know they're just. Uh, they don't switch, you know, there's two on one side. And so uh, you definitely see the difference um, in levels uh, with, you know, what they're doing movement wise, which goes back to, you know, how you um, value movement so much. So uh, yeah. definitely spot on there. <laughs> you, you had a very nice podcast episode on Compete Like a Champion uh, podcast about um, pre-match prep. I think it might have been a, an audience listener who asked you for that. I remember it was like 55 minutes, random factoid, I remember. But <laughs> uh, I was wondering, <laughs> maybe if you could distill like some of the most important elements of the pre-match routine, because I feel like a lot of people and, you know, myself, I have to admit, you know, sometimes at least like we kind of get there like late. We don't really have any sort of routine, things like that. So like what would you say are the priorities for people to, to potentially like implement in their pre-match uh, uh, routine? Well, I think the first thing to remember is a, is a, a good warm-up is something that has to prepare you physically and mentally, cognitively. Yeah. And quite often what you see is, is people get out there, do some leg swings, do some high knees, do a few stretches, and then they think they're warmed up and ready to go. We, we know from research that poor warm-ups where you don't get up to full speed before you play is one of the leading contributors of, of potentially of injury. So... Mm. Yes, you need a good physical warm-up. It's like an airplane. I think I, I use this analogy on that, that podcast, but it's like an airplane taking off. You start off gradual, you get up, you get up, and then you're at full height, full speed. And that's what a good warm-up. And, and to be honest, you can do that within 15 minutes or you can spend a bit longer and do it within 30. So if you're getting out the car and, and rushing to the court because you're late for a match and you've got, say, look, I got 10, 15 minutes here. I need to make sure and get warm. Then you have to condense that and you have to try and get a lot in in that 10, 15, which you can do. So, you know, a good physical warm-up routine is that blend of 
you know, mobility, flexibility, dynamic stretches with some movement. You got to do some linear movements, some forward movements, some lateral movements, because obviously tennis is a lateral sport, a big lateral sport. So you got to make sure you're covering all ranges of different movements. You've then got to get into doing things that now connect the eyes, the mind and the body, because that's how that's what you're preparing for. You know, you, your eyes see something, your brain processes it, and then it tells your body what to do. So keeping things very simple, that is the process we do, how we play tennis. It's eyes, mind, body, eyes, mind, body. Every single, every single shot we hit, we're running through that cycle. So you have, to, you have to prepare your eyes, mind, that eyes, mind, body connection. So get it start firing quicker. So whether that's doing little reaction drills mm. with a tennis ball or playing a little game that gets you going, and also doing that and getting up to full speed with that, then make sure that that, that connection between your eyes, your mind, and your body is, is as sharp as it can be with the time that you have going into your, into your, um, into your match or into your practices. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Really good stuff there. And then, you know, obviously when we play matches, uh, maybe we'll have like a plan A, plan B, whatever, but you know, sometimes it, it doesn't work or, you know, you have a new opponent who presents a lot of challenges. So I guess, um, you know, and generally like in life, you know, it's very important to become a problem solver. So I was just wondering, you know, how, how can we develop that skill and become better problem solvers and figure out, you know, how to, how to win matches? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in, in, and, and I think this is where it comes down to the quality of your practices and how you can use practices really as a strong tool. I think mm. sometimes too many players go out there and just try to feel the ball and try to feel like they're hitting it well. But then when they start moving into a, in, in a competitive situation and they have to really move dynamically, then they lose that feeling. Well, you just train for feel and rhythm, but tennis often is not that way. So your ability to use a practice to become a better problem solver. So again, a lot of research out there is talking about like constraints-led approach, um, the CLA approach. Mm -hmm. Constraints simply mean like, if I'm playing you, we have individual constraints. I may be smaller, you may be taller. So you have I have a constraint, or we all have different types of individual constraints. So how can you use that? In, in practices, we can, we can give each other individual constraints. Well, I can take away your backhand so you can only slice it. Mm. You know, that could also be involved in the task, the manipulating the task uh, constraint. But we, we can give each other different, the different constraints. So I have to figure out how to beat you and I'm allowed to do anything I want, but you're only allowed to slice your backhand. Well, how's that going to affect you? And how are you going to problem solve overcoming so you can still win? Are you going to mm. play the victim? Well, I should lose because I can't hit over my backhand. Or are you going to step up to that challenge and go, well, hey, there's going to be times where I go out there and my left wrist is hurting me. And maybe I've got to slice a little bit more, you know, because I don't want to pull out and let my doubles partner down. So I got to figure this out. Am I going to slice, you know, lob slice a little bit more? So simple things like that. You can manipulate space. So we can play half court games. We can play games where you're allowed three quarters of the court and I'm only allowed half the court or you're allowed three quarters of the court. I'm allowed full court. So you have to mm -hmm. figure out how to win with less space or win with more space, right? So you can put those constraints on each other. And again, don't play the victim in these drills. Your job is to try and problem solve how to, how to work through that. You can manipulate time. You can have, you know, probably do a lot of these drills where you'll feed it in from the service line. One person's on the baseline, you play it. Well, you know, you can do drills like that where if you're on the baseline and I'm, I'm working on transition, I'm going to put a really fast, tough feed into you. 
and you have to figure out how to how to deal with that ball so that I don't just sit on the net and put away a volley. You know, so do you come up with the slow lob, a slice lob, a hot, you know, do I try and dip it down at the feet? Do I try and go right at them? Do I try and go to the side of them? So you have to problem problem solve your way through that. So better problem solvers are those that are able to take on those dis- different constraints and tasks and still figure out how to how to make a winning situation out of it. But if you're not engaged in that process and you become the victim, then that just tells you you're not willing to be a problem, good problem solver on that day. So to me, that's some of the, the ways that you can manipulate practices and have a higher level of purpose to, to become a better problem solver. So, Yeah, I really love that constraints-led approach, Johnny, because um, you know, as long as you have maintained that mentality that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to win you know, this game, be successful, then you, you, you're, you have to force your brain to, to you know, find a solution somehow. So that's, that's well, let's really say, I'd stuff. say this in doubles, right? So, you know, you might be playing opponents who you've got one person on one person on the other side that's just a really good net player. So, what's your constraint? Your constraint is they're really good at the net. So, what are you going to try and do? Keep it away from them. Do I lob mm-hmm. it over their head? Have I got to try and play my returns wider into the, the doubles alley? You go right. through that process. So, that, that's problem solving. So you're taking the traits and and uh, the traits and skills you know that your opponents have, and you're having to adapt your game just a little bit. Whether it's your shot direction, shot speeds, you know, to 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 try and overcome that. Yeah, yeah, excellent, Johnny. So this next question, uh, fitness oriented. I feel like a lot of um, fitness coaches might like hate this question because it's. I mean, I know like people are <laughs> very different, obviously, uh, you know, in physical makeup and whatnot, but. Are there maybe like three or so exercises that you would recommend that that really would help tennis players very much if they implemented it a couple times a week or something like that, or you know more or less whatever? But yeah, just a few exercises that that you think are really integral could really help us, you know, with our tennis related fitness. <laughs> three, uh, that's a tough yeah. one. So, or so, you know, you could do less. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so much of. You know, so much of how we play tennis is just so, di- you know, so dynamic, so diverse. So three exercises or, or less. So, well, I think if you look at the objectives of, of what you're trying to achieve, some need to become a little bit stronger. Some need to become a little bit more explosive. Some need to become a little bit faster. I think what's really important is developing out a little bit of lateral speed, the understanding okay, yeah. of how to be a bit more explosive. So one thing, and again, this is this could be done as a warm up drill. It could be done as you know, as a as a game in the middle of practices sometimes. But one thing I like to do is just lead a follower mirror games. So mm. if if we're if we're doing lead a follower, you're the you're the leader, I'm the follower, and we're doing lateral movement. Well, you get to decide where to go and when to change direction, and I've got to try and keep up and stay in front of you. And then after a while, then you can open it up to so the leader can turn and sprint to one side of the court. So if we're shuffling in between doubles line to doubles line, you're deciding when to change direction. I've got to keep up. And then at any given moment, you can decide to sprint and 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 to one side of the court and pass the doubles alley and it turns into a bit of a race. I think what that does is is if you if you look at the way tennis is played is we go from lateral movements to turn and sprint movements back to lateral movements. So doing something basic like that that doesn't require equipment, you can, again, do it in warm-ups, whatever. So I think exercises like that really trigger again, and it triggers the eye-mind-brain connection. So I do a lot of exercises that involve that. So I think that's one. 
I think what's really important in tennis is balance. So you've got to have some, you know, foundational level of strength so that you can be a bit more stable and be more balanced because I could get my legs in a balanced position, but if my core is weak, I'm going to lean over, I'm going to lose balance Mm -hmm. that way. Or obviously if I just don't get behind the ball quick enough, I'm not going to be on balance. So I do a lot of different balance exercises in the different stances. So you can do it on a single leg, called single leg RDL, or I just call it serve landing position. And you can you can do things where you're catching and tossing a ball to each other in that position. We love to play this head, shoulders, knees, and toes game, which is basically we might you can do this in different stances as well, different positions. So we may be facing each other in a that ready athletic base, you know, return athletic base position. And the coach, you can get them popping on their toes. So it's like they're split steps and they're ready. Mm. And which we're calling out heads, shoulders, knees, toes. And if I shout the same direction twice, like shoulders, shoulders, first one to squat down and swoop up the cone or the ball wins. So mm. what that does is that's that to me is like a bit of a readiness drill that again can be done at the back end of a warm-up that you know gets all the system firing together. So I think you've got to start with objectives and principles like balance and stability and lateral speed, and then you can work in games around that. But again, figuring out ways that connect the eyes, mind, and the brain, uh, eyes, mind, and the body is is the priority. So those, I guess, would be a few things. And, and again, you can do all the balance exercises you want and and things like that, but make sure it's done with a high level of purpose and connection. So. I don't awesome. know. There's so there's so many out there, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, like <laughs> shoulder work. I, I'm not. Mm. A, I'm not a major fan. I've just seen t- through the years too many juniors get the bands out and they start doing the shoulder work and they don't actually do it properly. It's just like going mm. through the motions. If you're doing shoulder band work properly, you're going through full range of motion. You're going mm. faster internally, which is move forwards movements. You're doing it faster and rapid before you play and realistically uh, if you if you want to maintain shoulder health as well you would do some band work after you finish so you would do more external slower work which is going backwards mm-hmm. with the movement and go slow and go through full range of motion afterwards just to try and help preserve some shoulder preserve that shoulder which obviously can you know the sport is quite extensive on the shoulder so yeah that's uh i guess a few things few ideas yeah, yeah, no, awesome. I, I love the uh, fitness element of uh, of it all, and obviously, you've uh, gotten some certifications or the MTPS. That's right from uh, uh, ITPA, which obviously we talked about Dr. Mark Kovacs and, and Mary Jo over there. Um, a great resource. I'm curious. Um, just kind of a specific question, but like, <laughs> I was at the gym the other day, actually yesterday, doing some um, shoulder presses, and I, it got me thinking. Actually, uh, I mean, I, I've heard. Uh, coaches uh, say that you know overhead shoulder work isn't necessarily maybe the best idea but I don't know like is that is it just like an overuse thing is that not like really needed uh, that type of work yeah I mean it's 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 tough to know without without context but okay I would say that you need to train the movements or connecting movements that are involved in in trying to execute so you wouldn't do a ton of overhead press work 
if you're about to go and have a, a long day out on the practice court or a gotcha. long day or a long tournament, because what you've done there is just basically worn out your shoulder a little bit, and then you're going to go and use the shoulder a lot. So you have to be strategic on when you do it. Quite often, you know, players will do some of their strength work at the end of the day or after their practice. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, going to affect them in you know affect them in their practices so if you did a lot of shoulder press work before you went out for a practice it's probably not the best idea unless it's just like some shoulder activation work um to 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 get it ready but i i personally would work on especially if we had some you know a few weeks not a lot of competition you want to get the shoulder a little bit stronger especially that that overhead pressing movement because you have to get the body in those positions and if you're able to do that with a decent resistance, then, you know, hitting the serve over and over is going to become a little bit easier because you've got the strength, you've got the protection in the, in the back of your shoulder, the posterior side of your body. So I definitely wouldn't omit it, but you have to be smart about when you do it and how much you do it. And obviously the, the, the weight, the resistance that you're putting, you know, I personally as well, I, I would, as, as an activation thing before a player, if they've got two, three days before they're about to go play, We'll do a lot, a little bit more speed, explosive power work. It's not going to be a, mm. a lot of, it's not going to be a lot of volume, but we're going to get them going through all the different tape, types of ranges of, of movement and motion and do it explosively. So the body is firing, the central nervous system is all fired up and ready to go. And that's where I would place it. But if I had a preseason, I mean, definitely my players are overhead pressing to, to, to build up that strength, nice. stability, control of, of the shoulder joint. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, another selfish question, I guess, is <laughs> I was doing, um, uh, hex or trap bar deadlifts at same session. And it just kind of got me thinking as, you know, refining my workout and such. I mean, I did generally speaking, I mean, are you maybe a two-parter? Like, are you, you a fan of like, uh, the deadlifts and squats in, in workouts? I mean, as, as, you know, pretty good compound movements. And then also, do you have a preference between hex bar and traditional, you know, deadlift, because I've, I've heard that I guess maybe the hex bar is a little bit safer for the back potentially. So I guess two-parter. <laughs> yeah. Well, my answer to that is it depends on the athlete. Okay. I've, I've had, I wouldn't have all my athletes back squatting and I wouldn't have all my athletes, um, hex bar okay. deadlifting. It, okay. The, you can get, so what you're trying to achieve there is obviously a lower body push movement um mm-hmm. again you know against the resistance and there are different different modalities you can use and it all depends on the player and the person so i've had players that cannot really put a barbell on their back it mm-hmm. really stiffens them up it compresses the spine and, and they mm-hmm. they end up you know developing a stiffness and and soreness that does obviously not help them when it comes to them serving where you've got to load and rotate and then explode up. But I've got some athletes that are really capable of doing that and they like it and they feel it helps them get stronger and it doesn't have the same effect on their body in terms of compressing and stiffening and and soreness of the back. So you go to a different modality. So hex bar deadlift too. I've had some athletes very competent, very strong. They're able to lock in their core, very strong cores, keep that nice flat back, and they push up with that hex bar, uh, hex bar deadlift, and they love it. And I've had some athletes that that their backs, their lower backs, kind of slightly round when they go into the pushing phase, uh-huh. and it hurts their backs. 
So mm. then you go, okay, what other modalities do we have? Well, we got the leg press, right? So the leg press may not be, it may isolate the lower body, but you're still able to gain a lot of that strength, lower body push movements out of it as well. So my answer is always going to be, it depends on the athlete. And again, I've, I've had athletes where I've used all different types of modalities to achieve the same thing, which is obviously lower body strength, that push lower body pushing movement. So yeah, I, I can't give you a definitive answer, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it, it just depends on what helps the athlete achieve the objective, you know? And again, you've also, there's, a, there's something to this. If you like hex bar deadlifting, then you'll want to do it because you like it and you feel like you're good at it. Some, some athletes are indifferent. They don't really like doing it. So, hey, find something they do like to do because then they'll be more engaged in the exercise. And if you're more positive and engaged in an exercise, you're going to get more out of it. Um, and that that's consistent on the court, off the court, and everything that you do. So, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think that's really important to note, though. Yeah, definitely. No, I appreciate that. And you're right. I mean, obviously, <laughs> if you've never uh, lifted weights before, you're a beginner, like maybe you just, you know, bodyweight squats or like goblet squats, stuff like yeah. that. Just use a dumbbell, um, see what works and what doesn't. Obviously, it'd be crazy to you know, pick one and it hurts you and you're like, oh, but this is the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, appreciate that. Very helpful. Um, in terms of, um, you know, obviously you've developed, you know, so many players and that's, that's kind of your role now, uh, obviously. So I want to ask you about just your lessons learned in general and maybe like, has any of your philosophies like changed from when you were coaching initially to, to now in terms of like developing players, just overall, um, advice for, and maybe if you could possibly, and maybe it's the same, like you mentioned, uh, with, with the, uh, athletic part of it, like uh, in terms of like juniors versus adults, but just like, yeah, how we can best develop our, our skills so we, we can reach the next level. Yeah. I mean, this is a, I mean, such a great question. I know you sent this to me prior, prior to the podcast, and this is one that I spent well, not just because you asked it, but this is a question that I sort of ponder every every few months or every you know after nice. maybe some major things that have happened in in my in my coaching, and it's important to sort of always stay on top of this, I guess. But I think yeah. the main lessons I've learned is number one is really keep it simple. You know, I think when I was a young coach starting out, you say a lot, you want to teach a lot, you see something, you want to intervene right away with everything. And all you're doing is like, okay, we're rallying up and now, but we're focusing on your forehand. We're focusing on, I don't know, the, the, the preparation phase of your forehand, you know, and all of a sudden I see something else and then I jump onto that and then, oh, okay, we're working on that. And then I see something else. We jump onto that. And all of a sudden you've, we've now gone through 20 minutes of the, of the session and you've worked on like, you know, eight different things when we started with one, which was just preparation of the forehand. So I think it's important to note that, look, there's always a lot of different things that we can work on and get better at, but we've got to stay true and keep it simple to the objective that we're trying to work on and just take notes of those other things that we're seeing. And if we're seeing those things are repeatable in our habits and we do need to eventually address, we've got to keep it simple in, in terms of when we decide to address them, it's got to be at the right time and it's got to be at the right moment. Um, but don't veer away from the objective keep it simple and, and, and work at it. Um, what comes with that is asking more questions. So I think in my coaching, I still find myself at times, you know, I, I'm more aware to it now, but I want to ask more questions to the players. Cause I, you know, we come back to problem solving. I think we're going to help them become better problem solvers by asking them the questions. 
And the younger the person is, the more I think closed questions you need to ask. Like, do you think this would help? Oh, yeah, that would help. Or, you know, out of these three options, which one do you think is going to help you the most? You know, and then as you become older or, you know, you know, the brain's able to kind of think about things a little bit more critically or analytically, then you start ask, asking a little bit more open-ended questions. Okay, what do you feel is going to help you, you know, be more successful in hitting that target? And, and let them come up with the answer. And, and again, don't be so quick to jump in. Give them time to think about it. You know, if they don't answer in the first five seconds, well, then just be quiet for another five seconds and let them think about it a bit more. So that's one, especially with juniors. Like I, I always loved working with adults because when an adult comes to a lesson or comes, you know, with their team is that they know what they want to work on. And that's great. Um, with juniors, so so they take that responsibility. They take a bit of ownership over what they want to do and and how they want to get better. But with juniors, you really have to teach them what responsibility looks like, what taking, what being accountable to their improvement looks like, and then obviously what ownership looks like over their games. And that that process can take time, so you got to be patient through that process. But I think it's really important. I think accountability is the biggest tool that we have as coaches is being able to hold players accountable to what they want to do and how they want to do it. Sometimes players kind of forget that. And also with the juniors and the players that we're developing, we're trying to develop them to be very, very high-level players. So we mm -hmm. really do have to hold them to high levels of accountability in the way that they train every day. When they're tired, when they're sore, you know, when they're fresh, there's, there's got to be that level of accountability because life doesn't get easier and tennis doesn't get easier. <laughs> So, you know, you, you kind of have to be that force for them, but ultimately it's, you need to help them take more ownership over that. And that's a journey that you need to be patient with. You know, I think the big, one of the biggest things I see also after matches, and I don't know, is like, if, if you have a coach of your team, if you have a coach that watches your matches and things, and I was guilty of this as a young coach too, but listen first and then talk after. So when a player comes on, you obviously, you know, you may have seen like things about the car ride home or, you know, <laughs> but we want to be so quick to jump in and tell them why they won or lost a match, mm. you know, but why, why do we want to put that in their brain? Let's see how they, they're processing that win or loss. Cause it's really important that we understand that because then we actually can think about that and learn how to actually help them better. So, so let them talk first, let them, let them give you the opportunity to see how they're processing a good match, a bad match, a win, a loss, whatever that, that will, I think that will make us become better coaches. Yeah. Uh, practices, practices don't always have to be long physical practices. Phys you know, practices could be a little bit easier physically, but they'd be, could become more mentally and cognitively challenging. So like we talked mm -hmm. about with constraints. Right. We can we can we can have less space to hit into and have to figure out how to problem solve and really put on a bit more of a mental challenge. But that was one of the other things when I was a young coach. It's like, well, how do we know we've had a good practice? If my player doesn't come off the court and feel like they've really worked hard, then that's that's a bad practice. Well, no, it's not. Not every practice needs to be long and really physical because I'd ask you, is like, could you show up to the tennis court every day and absolutely destroy your body? And yeah. still get as good a still get of a good as a good good of a practice out of a Friday practice as you did as a Monday when you may be more fresh. Like no, so it's all about maximizing what you're doing out there, and it's okay not to have a you know grueling practice every single time you're on the court. You know as long as it's productive and you're getting something out of it, 
that's that's important. Yeah, one or two more, I guess. Kids ask mm. why a lot more now. Mm. I think my, you know, I don't know. When I look back at it, I think my generation, you know, millennial, whatever you want to call it, there, there are probably a few more of us that used to give automatic um, respect and buy-in to our coaches. So if a coach asks me to do something, I'm going to do it. You know, because they asked me, they're the expert and I'm going to do it. So many more kids now to get them to buy in, you've got to be good at asking, answering that question, why? And by the way, that's a good thing. You know, it's not a bad thing, a player coming asking why. It means that they're curious. They want to understand, they want to connect. And I think sometimes as coaches, we go, well, because I said so, <laughs> you know, do it because I said so. I'm the coach. Well, that doesn't help them connect and understand. So, you know, be okay and know that it's a good thing when somebody asks why and don't take it personally, don't take it offensively, but take it as a wow, like they're really engaged and really curious about getting better. So I think that's one that we're going to have to be good at as coaches uh, and as people moving forward, because that's not going to get, that's not, that's not going anywhere. In fact, it's only yeah. going to get worse. People going, why do I have to do this? Why, you know, why that? Well, practice getting good at answering those questions. Um, if you don't have a why, uh, an answer to the why, you probably shouldn't be doing it, yeah. right? Uh, I can't, if, you're, if you want to work on something, I set up a drill and you're like curious, well, why, why are we actually doing this? Is it, and I have an answer for you. I'm probably not doing a good job setting up the drill to help you work on the skill that you want to do. So there's one there. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's, that's mostly it. I know that was a lot, but again, I, you got my brain spinning when you asked that question. I've just jotted down a few notes and it's a little similar to, to some notes I wrote down a while back. So, yeah. Yeah, Thank I you. love it. That's in my brain going. <laughs> uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm, hopefully we'll do this again soon. And uh, yeah, it reminds me of, you know, Agassi. Um, I think Gil Reyes, his former trainer, uh, yeah. said that Andre would always ask him, you know, like, oh, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? So um, it's a, one of the great, many great points that you made. So Johnny, uh, obviously we've mentioned a few times um, your uh, Compete Like a Champion podcast with Dr. Larry Lara that everybody should definitely check out. We'll have the link to it in the show notes page, but any, you know, social media profiles or, you know, websites or any, you know, anything else you want to shout out, like where, where the audience should go to, um, to follow you. Yeah. So, I mean, you can, well, first of all, there's a lot of great resources on the player development website, playerdevelopment.usta.com. A lot of great resources up there that, you know, Larry's put on, uh, put a, a lot of good stuff on there. A lot of just great things about, so some development in general for our social media, I have an Instagram at Johnny underscore parks. I try and put stuff on it every now and again. I, I very much use it as an educational platform to help a lot of athletic development exercises there related to tennis skill development. And I try and, you know, explain the why in the captions of the, maybe the video they're seeing. So I don't usually post, I don't post that often, but I usually will post something when somebody asks me a question, how do I improve in this? And then I'm like, oh, well, let's make a video and we'll put it up and answer that question because maybe some others are interested. So there's that. I know Larry's on Twitter, at Larry Lauer. I'm on Twitter, although I'm not going to use it as much. I'm going to use that threads a little bit more now. Oh, nice. But, <laughs> yeah. I just, I don't know. There's a, there's a little personal beef against Elon Musk for me and also 
you know, I'm on Instagram a little bit more than, than, you know, don't go on Twitter that much, but we, 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 we ask our listeners want to get in touch with us from the podcast. It's, you know, send us a message on Twitter, whatever. It's the easiest place at Larry Lauer at Johnny Parks one LinkedIn, stuff like that. So awesome. Awesome. Great, John. Yeah, we'll definitely have those links in there. So I guess you won't be getting a Tesla anytime soon. <laughs> uh, no, you see them all the time out here in California, though. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you do. You do. Um, yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah, I lost track of time. Uh, obviously, you know, it's such a fun interview. So hopefully I didn't destroy your day, Johnny. But <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been really fantastic having you on, Johnny. Just want to um, let you have the floor. Any final thoughts before we adjourn? Final thoughts, it's like Jerry Springer's final thoughts. No, uh, <laughs> not quite that level, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's a yeah. bit over the top. Yeah, yeah tennis podcast, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, Larry and I often do a drop the mic moment. We don't have a stand quite like yours. Like I got to hold my microphone, so we'll just say something right. and drop the mic on it. But uh, right. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, you know, for your audience, it's you know, I think you know, the love of the game and enjoyment of the game, whether you're an adult or a junior, that that's got to be like the very first thing that you, you do. Unfortunately, in my world with juniors, you, 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 you see quite a few people that you question whether they enjoy it. And that's always what you come back to. And you look at the pros and you say, why, you know, why does Novak keep going as long as he did? Why did Roger keep going as long as he did? And they always come back to because they just love it. They love it. They enjoy it. And so, it doesn't mean to say that sometimes you, 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 you struggle with it. You know, when you're playing tennis and you have a bit of a, a rough time, you start struggling with it. Well, just remember, remember your real purpose around why you play the game and why you try and improve and enjoyment. And, and, you know, with what says, what comes with that is, is just make sure when you go to practices and training, play matches that, that you were very, clear on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to focus on because again we 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 have this awful habit as humans of making things more complicated than they need to be i think it's human nature but um yeah just try and keep things as simple as you can so wise words wise words thanks johnny uh also wish uh everton luck uh, in the upcoming season uh, God, you know spurs and everton stuff uh blood pressure goes through the roof <laughs> the next, like nine months but yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's well at least it's entertaining what are you gonna do just exactly. stay up at least uh, that's, that's the goal uh yeah. that's the goal for us too these days it's kind of rough but anyways uh thank you johnny really appreciate it hope to have you back on again soon uh as i mentioned everybody uh check out the links on the show notes page including uh compete like a champion podcast and yeah uh appreciate it and uh talk to you again soon sounds great thanks for having me enjoyed it nice thanks sure. same here pleasure all right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach Johnny Parks. Thanks a lot to Johnny for the time. And if you received value from this podcast episode, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end, or leave a review in your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. We just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest mover in terms of getting the show the most uh, visibility and you know rankings and so forth. Don't really care too much about the rankings, to be honest, and Apple's rankings are a little bit weird at times, it seems. Hopefully they won't penalize me for uh, saying this. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, the more reviews on there and ratings, the better. 
So I really appreciate that. And I also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Frederick Douglass. And Mr. Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Very evident for our tennis games. Always got to get a little outside of our comfort zone, sometimes a lot out of our comfort zone, and try new things. And obviously, trying new things don't always work the first, second, or third time. But um, if you keep at it, then you will get, you know, those gains that you're looking for in due time. So yeah, there is that. And again, really appreciate you listening to the show. We've obviously got more content in store for you. I've also been testing out some demo rackets as well. So uh, I filmed actually a session of me hitting to make a review video on that. So hopefully you'll find that interesting. And... With that, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tense Files podcast. This is your host, Mirban Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.